Today on Ag News Daily. Yeah, so Rise Aero Technologies is an aircraft company essentially, but what we're different than the drone companies in that we started bigger. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Podcast coming at you a little bit later this morning here on Wednesday, September 6th. Delaney Howell flying solo today as Tanner and I have conflicting schedules this week, but it's probably going to be like that for quite some time as we finally head into harvest season. We don't officially have any planter, or excuse me, any combines rolling according to the USDA, but we're getting really close as we look at this week's crop conditions report. The big headline here is that soybean crop conditions finally fell after some hot and dry weeks down 5%, according to the USDA. When we look at ratings of poor to very poor conditions, USDA rated 17% of soybeans in that poor to very poor category. That's actually up 3% from the previous week. However, when we look at crops rated good to excellent, 53% of soybeans were rated in that category. That's down 5% from the previous week. As I mentioned, no combines have officially hit the field yet, according to the USDA, although I'm guessing, according to Twitter, we've seen a few folks starting to get started. I know we're definitely seeing silage choppers out in the field, and those folks with livestock are getting crops out of the ground. But as we head into the final stretch here before harvest, corn conditions remain relatively unchanged compared to the week prior. USDA rated good to excellent corn 53% for the week ending last week. That's down 3% compared to the week prior. And as we look at the other categories here, 18% of crops have reached maturity up 9% from the previous week. So we are definitely chugging right along. Spring wheat, we saw 74% of the crop harvested in the top six spring wheat growing states. That's up compared to 54% the week prior. So wrapping up spring wheat harvest there as our attention will soon turn to corn and soybean harvest. But for those of our farmers that are getting a little bit of rain and probably cooler weather this week, we are going to see, again, some potential coverage from wildfires. Once again, heard on the news this morning that in central Iowa, Minnesota, and other parts of the Midwest, we could expect to see about two to three days here of hazier conditions due to continued wildfires up north. So should help to cool temperatures off a little bit here for a few days as we head into the weekend. And uh, that'll certainly help round things out here for crops as we head into harvest season. But as far as some other news goes, we should see the Federal Reserve's beige book released this afternoon. And for those of you that are unaware of the Federal Reserve beige book, it's a book that's released every two weeks ahead of the next Federal Open Market Committee. It's published about eight times per year, and it's really an indication that provides a detailed analysis of where the U.S. economy is at, according to the Federal Reserve. The policymakers that study where the economy is at are also considering potential monetary policy changes so that we can see where the economy is at as far as signs of slowing or growth are concerned. But the Beige Book is expected to once again show a very resilient economy 
with potentially signs of slowing. However, they said it's also unlikely that the beige book will show that inflation has been tamed. And as we look at inflation, it's a sticky subject, as we know, and likely going to expect another rate hike later this year. But the beige book should be an indicator uh, as to whether or not we will see that rate hike happen in September. Currently, Fed futures funds are placing 7% odds on a September rate hike. However, the odds for a rate hike in November have jumped to 43%, saying it's likely we will see that happen. But commodity inflation will also be another emerging topic for the beige book and the Federal Reserve and for the commodity markets. We saw crude oil prices surge to fresh eight-and-a-half-month highs on Tuesday after we saw Saudi Arabia extend voluntary production cuts to their production in December. To go along with that, Russia has also announced voluntary cuts the past week, and that cuts total production of oil down to about 1.8 million barrels per day, which is coming at a time when a lot of analysts are questioning whether demand in China is strong or going to be lackluster here moving forward. But as we look at fuel shortages, the Russian farm minister says fuel shortages are threatening harvest and sowing for the Russian farm economy. Russian agricultural minister Patrushev said on Wednesday that fuel shortages are threatening to disrupt their autumn harvest and sowing season, and he's urged a suspension of petroleum product exports for the country of Russia. He's urging that suspension to happen so that they can slow fuel shortages and potentially keep more of that fuel in country as farmers face a pretty large crop. But Russia, one of the biggest oil producers, has faced some of these shortages, as I mentioned here, of production and are cutting back production. So the minister is also urging to cut exports as well. Traders said that the fuel market has been hit by a combination of a couple different factors here, and that's really why they're seeing potentially some shortages. That's including maintenance at several major oil refineries in in Russia, bottlenecks on railways, which we've seen elsewhere as well with supply chain issues still top of mind, as well as the weakness of the ruble, which incentivizes fuel exports. And in other uh, energy news here, as we continue the Summit Carbon Solution Pipeline hearings, Summit has identified a handful of populated areas at risk, they say, from major pipeline breach. As part of their ongoing debate here to get the pipeline approved, they of course have had to do several analysis and studies to see if there would be severe consequences from a major pipeline breach. And according to Summit, there are several areas of, quote, high consequence in Iowa that could be inundated by carbon dioxide if the proposed pipeline had a major failure, according to the company's chief operating officer, James Powell. As he mentioned, there are several areas of these, quote, high consequence areas in Iowa. And on Tuesday, Powell was the first witness for the company to testify at the evidentiary hearing that the Iowa Utilities Board has been hosting, 
which is weighing, of course, whether or not to approve the project altogether. Powell did not, however, identify the at-risk areas. However, he did share that under certain conditions, when pipelines are breached, releases of carbon dioxide can create a plume of the gas that has the potential to travel long distances and suffocate both animals and people. That's apparently what happened back in 2020 in Mississippi when another company's pipeline ruptured and sickened dozens of people. Three people in that area nearly died. And so, of course, that does not bode well for the Summit Carbon Pipeline. But Powell testified that Summit's so-called dispersion modeling is much more robust and said that the company's plans and precautions would make this pipeline system one of the safest ever constructed. He said they're trying to take into account these past events that have happened, such as the one in Mississippi, and are really trying to do a good job modeling this, as well as planning ahead and implementing more redundancy and safety features. But in other carbon-related news, farmers are saying carbon contracts ought to pay more money. According to a recent study done by Purdue University that was released on Tuesday, they suggested that most growers are hesitant to start carbon contracts due to payment rates too low to entice them to try it. The small portion of farmers that did respond that they were starting carbon contracts and have signed those were only about 2% of the total corn and soybean farmers that Purdue uh, interviewed. And that 2% that have signed carbon contracts also said they were ready, if required, to change production practices to potentially earn more money. Of the other 98% that were interviewed, they said most payment rates were too low to entice them to sign carbon contracts, as well as change any sort of production practices to be applicable for those carbon-based programs. They said the interest of carbon contracts in row crop agriculture remains high. However, based on the Purdue Ag Economy Barometers survey, it's still not there. The money is still not there for farmers really to be overly interested and eager to sign up for the new programs. Nearly six of every 10 growers said they wanted to earn at least 30 extra dollars per acre for them to feel like it was a worthwhile use of their time, especially if new production practices were needed to be employed to be eligible for the carbon contracts. And lastly, here in some fun headline news, Kubota has invested $600,000 in the Kubota Hometown Proud program, which is grants aimed at helping rural communities thrive. They will be awarding $600,000 in grants to five deserving hometown communities. And Kubota is an annual Kubota Hometown Proud is an annual grant program that encourages municipalities and nonprofit organizations to partner with their local Kubota dealership to apply for these grant funding considerations. This year, they've already received over 800 applicants, and they'll be working to select five regional grant winners, which will be announced, which have just been announced, excuse me, uh, per today's release. One will be Lucasville, Ohio, that is working to build a community gathering space. The other is Lebanon, Tennessee, which is focused on building Black Farms Food and Family Project in partnership with the local Kubota dealer. The Children's Village in Idaho, which is Every Family Deserves a Village, helping children who have gone through trauma response. 
or helping children who have gone through trauma, giving them a safe sp- space to deal with their trauma response. West Milwaukee, excuse me, West Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is putting together a hunger tax force to help with the local food bank. And lastly, the Giving Grove in Dallas, Texas, which is going to help create a program around a community orchard. So congratulations to those five communities there that have been successful in receiving a Kubota grant. Here at the Midday Markets are mixed. Corn trading higher on the board, up a penny and three quarters cents in the December contract at 4.87 and three quarters. New crop beans up 14 and a half cents today at the midday here at 13.79 and three quarters. And Chicago wheat up 13 and three quarters cents at 6.13. Hard red winter wheat up 24 cents at 7.48. And livestock also trending higher here across the board. Turning things over to a conversation Tanner captured at Farm Progress Show last week with Rise Technologies. We have a guest that's sitting with us today with Rise Aerotechnology. The manned aerial vehicle. That's right. We're going to get deeper into it. So we got Mick with us. And Mick, tell me your title at Rise again. I'm the CEO and founder of Rise Aerotechnologies. So uh, let's let's do this. Let's remind our listeners, what is Rise? Uh, where did you start? Uh, a little bit of aerospace engineering there and uh, give us a little background. Tell us what it is on its uh, 30,000 foot view. Yeah, so Rise Aerotechnologies is an aircraft company essentially, but what we're different than the drone companies in that we started bigger. Our team built air taxi systems And we actually went smaller to an ultralight part 103 aircraft, which means you don't need a a Mm -hmm. pilot's license to fly it. Anybody can fly it. It's less certification than a drone with part 107. Uh, Single occupant, 63 miles an hour, 250-pound payload. And it can be more than that, but that's what we spec it at. And then you got 25 minutes of flying time with it. It can take off and land on water or on land. That's right. And, uh, you know, it's a heck of a lot of fun to use. We actually just had it on a lake last week. I was flying it uh, pretty fast down a lake all last weekend. So it sounds like a lot of the same stats that you gave us last year. Is there anything new on this year's model? Yeah, so uh, one of the big things is we've added in a remote kit. So when you say, well, it's not a drone, it now actually can be changed and used as a drone. You have to get a certificate of authorization from the FAA, just like you would a big sprayer. Because essentially that's what we're turning it into. So we can make it a big sprayer for you, put a boom with precision nozzles on it, and you can use it to fly remote. Really? So you could get the program and like you're not actually even flying. You just tell it, I want to spray this field at this gallons, and it just goes up and does it. Yep. And is that would that be the biggest capacity sprayer drone that So you're replacing two hundred and fifty pounds a person with two hundred and fifty pounds of chemical yeah so you know a little more than 25 gallons you know you can get closer to 30 gallons of uh, spray in it so we haven't done it dual purpose though yeah we can use it to ride in and or use it as a spray drone yep if you pull any of the materials off of it as long as you have that coa you can use it to do drone work but and this is something that we always wanted to do but we didn't have the remoting kits so, you know, spraying booms, they're pretty easy, getting the right partners for nozzles and things like that. We're still doing some of that, but that's the game plan for that. Yeah. So if I remember back to uh, last time we interviewed you, about a hundred grand to buy them, and maybe last January they were available? Have you? Uh, 150000 okay. and in January we started the system up, and we have 260 recons that are being built. Awesome. Where are they being built? Cincinnati, Ohio. 
why there? That's where we're located. Just that's just okay. Yeah, just I didn't where know we're there at. was like some, you know, specific reason. Like that's the yep. flying drone of the world. You know. So yeah. when do they, the When world. will they hit uh, hit the shelves, if you will? So we're priming the line right now, which is really just getting all the supply chains done. So the supply chains are actually done, but actually priming supply in, and the build starts in October and will be delivering in end of first quarter of this year. You know, we just didn't uh, quite get the uh, funding that we wanted in the timely manner we wanted, so we had to extend our funding round. We're actually doing a Reg CF round right now, and we're taking in the funding to be able to prime that line and get awesome. it running. I know the FAA lifted some restrictions for spray drones, like for, I think maybe it was on pounds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because now it mm -hmm. used to be a certain amount of pounds, now you can like go double it. Yeah. Has that affected you guys at all? Or it doesn't affect us because we're you're going to still need for our our vehicle you're going to still need a certificate of authorization. So they did increase it, and I know that, like, DJI is coming out with a bigger drone pretty soon. It won't be as big, obviously, as what ours is. So for ours, you still need to get that certificate of authorization. It takes about six months to get one, which a lot of farmers already have who are spraying. Yep. So it's not an unusual reach for them to be able to do it. The vehicle has geofencing built in. So even if you fly it, if I took you guys to fly it, we would geofence you so you couldn't go, like, taken off 10 miles away or go 100 feet in the air. We geofence you in. So all that technology is utilized as part of the program for the remoting. I saw. You could have used it this morning just in traffic. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We talked about it this morning <laughs> in traffic, actually. We're just sitting there like, what if we just had that rise uh, vehicle that we could just take up and go right over the top of all these people? One of our first uh, customers, actually, is a guy who's not a farmer, but he lives on a point on a lake. And his office is exactly one mile across the lake. But he used to drive 28 minutes around the lake oh, every wow. day. So he bought it in order to be able to drive it or fly it, excuse me, across the lake. Save a half an hour every day. Yeah. Time's money. Yeah. Yeah. I oh. get that. So what, uh, uh, well, now we just talked with a gentleman yesterday, Corey, about uh, uh, spraying his beans with yeah. a drone and how much more effective it was than uh, using he an it. He was desiccating his soybeans. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And he, he was investing in a system. He was looking at a new system. So if you guys have dual purpose where I don't know that there's any drone slash vehicle that would be dual purpose i kind of like that thought process that might set you guys apart as a value add uh something you could ride he was saying that his kid it would lift his kid up like they've tried it but <laughs> yeah yep i wouldn't recommend that on a drone you know one of the interesting things about drones is they're designed with very little redundancy because you're generally not carrying human life yep uh, whereas ours is designed with the human life in mind first it's it's the primary respect uh, of what we've built so we have three layers of communication redundancy at every terminal every prop every battery it all is designed for significant redundancy if you lose a motor and you're flying it's going to still let you fly it's going to land you safely if you lose two and you're going lightning fast, it's still going to get you safely to the ground. Hmm. And that's kind of the design. That's why the cost is so much higher than, you know, your typical drone because we've built it really for to carry life, yes. right. you know. And so there's, there's the, the complexity in the technology and the cost just of the technology yeah. to do it. So last year at Farm Progress, you guys flew it. And I mm -hmm. knew you guys were up in Des Moines for a Landis event, mm -hmm. and you flew it there. We did. Mm -hmm. You're not flying it. This year, what's going on? We didn't bring a second one this year because we had a uh, problem with a part on one of them, and it was going to take two days to get the part done, and it wouldn't have been reasonable to bring it because we have another show we're going to next week. What's next week? It's a military show. Oh, so this oh. Is a, could be a military 
application? Base application as well? Yeah. Are yeah. they green? Obviously. What's that? Are they green for we, the military? Yeah, yeah. We actually have green version. Oh. Now weapon systems we got. Green and camouflage. Look at that, Dave. Yeah, but they have lots of drones that uh, don't include life for a reason. Right. So then they're just Overwatch. You know, know we talked about like hunting coyotes on it last time. Yeah, we did. <laughs> well, one of the one of the big uses from a military perspective, case case studies, is the ability to be able to use it as a drone to go and find somebody who's identified as, hey, I'm you down. Put them in there and let them fly back. Get them into and get them to fly back. Yep. So do you think that's going to be a bigger application than ag, or what? No, I don't know if I think that. I think ag is a ag. I mean. Ag is huge. You know, I mean, I, I sit here and, you know, I'm an aviation guy. I'm not an ag guy. And I just went around with a, a guy who's helping us consulting. And my mind's blown, you know, the difference between cover crop and row crop. And, you know, it's spinning in circles and specialty crop. And being in California is so different than being in Illinois, from being in Iowa, from being in Georgia. Right. Yep. And it just, there's, there's so many things to think about. We had somebody come in and talk about being able to mount a gun on it to be able to take down feral pigs down in, in Texas. Texas. Yep. And so, you know, I mean, these are all uh, applications that are viable, right? It's, so we're just providing the mechanism, and it's going to be up to other people to figure out what they want to do with it, other than take it fishing, you know. So technology gets cheaper over time. You're in its newest stage. You used to have to spend $3,500 for a 50-inch yep. plasma TV. Mm -hmm. Do you think after this gets up and ground-proofed and there's hundreds of thousands of them out there, what, where do you think the cost is? Because a lot of people can't afford 150000 Right. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. I mean, the price of a 640 John Deere right there doesn't really come down very much. Right. You know, it's the same thing. Aviation, aircraft prices don't come down. If you need to get it secondhand, you can get it secondhand at some point in time. That's where a lot of entry into the secondary market occurs, I think. So I think that's going to probably be part of the entry point. We just can't drop the price. It's just not economical for us. It's not a business if you right. do. Right. Got it. Late model. There'll be auctions for yeah. these. I, I mean, think it'll happen is, you know, we're, we're working on new designs and new versions of it, and people want to upgrade. And yep. when they want to upgrade, that's what's going to happen with it. They want to get some return off that investment into something What new. do you think the lifespan of, of something like that is? I know batteries only have so long and electric motors and all that. Well, so one, uh, so electric motors have incredibly long lifespan. Yep. Batteries are your shortest lifespan. Battery replacement's about $15,000. And because they're removable, rechargeable, on mm -hmm. our product, it makes it easy. Same thing with your, your drones, yeah, right? Yeah, you just get new ones. You know, but I think the, the big thing for us, you know, with the durability is we moved away last year when we talked. We had an aluminum frame, 6061 aerospace aluminum okay. frame. We now have a carbon, carbon fiber, fiber frame. The yep. reason we did that, manufacturability and ease of repair. So now you as a farmer can actually repair this vehicle pretty easily yourself. You can use a distributor or a dealer to do it, but if you want to repair it yourself, you can do it pretty easily. Replacing a pod, replacing a motor, we have down to a science for the manufacturing process. There's not a farmer that I've ever met that wouldn't be able to do it themselves if they wanted to do it. Right. Has anybody crashed one? No. 
I've crashed a drone. I've crashed a drone. <laughs> I, we've had hard landings, so yeah. you know I'm not going to, you know, especially in testing and, yeah. and doing different things. But no one's ever been injured in it or anything. I was like just thinking that. about replacing like the pods because each one of them is a, like a full, you know, big gulp, you know, that you take. And yeah, but so and, and honestly, the pods. What usually goes on the pod with a hard landing, and again, we really have only ever had hard landing and testing, is the outrigger float, which is used for landing on water. That piece is a carbon piece and, and plastic PLA piece, and it's pretty easy to replace. It's six screws and a dowel rod through it. You can replace it pretty gotcha. easily. So this gets up and going, say we're 10, 15 da years down the road. Where do you think the technology is going for? Are you going to heavier, faster, all that kind of stuff? I think you're going to see in the next 10 to 15 years a lot more personal use, multi-person uh, use as air taxis are going to start developing here in, in urban settings over the next 10 years. And I just was at a seminar uh, with all the large players in New York City uh, about a month ago. And they're targeting 2030 for real use case. They're targeting autonomous use case in 2040. And the reason is the national airspace, which is what pilots, people like me, we fly in, you know, when we're flying airplanes and regular aircraft, it's not developed enough for this technology. It's why drones are kept at 400 feet yeah. so that they can stay below where anybody actually is. Our aircraft, because it's technically an ultralight, it can fly, you know, 1,200 feet if you want to or 3,000 feet. So, you know, as that airspace develops a little bit further, you're going to see personal vehicles for people to use driving and commuting back and forth to work occur. But I think you're really talking about 2035, 2040 timeline. How much... Uh uh, this year, I've seen just a huge push in AI technology, okay, artificial intelligence, and uh, automating uh, processes. And everybody's talking that when we get quantum computing here in about 10 years, that then the billions and billions of, of different synapses that happen at the same time, how does that affect what you're doing is it make it quicker better faster or or what does AI automatically predict uh, who's next to you, um, you know? flying? So, I mean, my background is actually in artificial intelligence and neural networks and natural language processing. So I come out of, I develop technology that's used in smartphones today for speech recognition. And I can tell you AI is a loaded term. Okay. You know, it really is because it means a lot of things and it means a lot of nothing. You know, a lot of people say, you know, can AI, you know, overtake, you know, people and do things. It can do jobs that people are doing. It can operate faster than what you can operate but it can't outthink what you're going to do beyond what's real. It uses modeling. Our technology to make that thing fly stably in any wind direction, it uses data modeling to figure that mm -hmm. out. That's what a lot of people call artificial intelligence. So technically, we have artificial intelligence. But real artificial intelligence and neural networking, really where that is, is when it can actually think, learn, and grow beyond that. There's not a lot of that technology really out there today. A lot of it's going to end up coming in biotechnologies, believe it or not. So, you know, to say that you're going to have airspace flying and things are going to be keeping from bumping in predictively, it's hard to tell. Think about it. And the autonomous car world, we talk a lot about, you know, cars with autopilot and things like that. The reality is until every car is operating with that same mechanism, with that same logic, that's not going to work. Because are you going left or are you going right with the car in front of you? Are you slowing down? What happens if a third car enters in? If they're not all using the same technology, it doesn't work. So it's it's not as predictive as people actually want to believe it's going to be. Okay. Well, I it, I didn't I don't know if I told you this. I was in Kentucky last week, and uh, my my 
rideshare driver had a Tesla, and I had never ridden a Tesla before. But we're in there, and there's alarms going off. Man, there's this to the left, and I'm looking at the big screen in the center front and kind of uh, enamored by it. And it's it's showing, like, where the vehicles are, you know, grayed-out vehicles as they're moving, like a camera has it. And I thought, well, this is kind of neat. This, you know, isn't going to avoid any accidents. And then what do we do? We turn the curb. Well, it missed the curb, and he took that thing over the curb. I think he bent his rim on the oh, car, boy. and he just sits it, and he's like, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we bumped up over the curb. Yep. He scraped right into the side of it, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, isn't this supposed to be the smartest car? You know, and we just we just totally curb checked the curb right. and and probably bent his rim on and, it. And monitoring is a lot different than avoidance. Gotcha. You know, and that's something to think about in any technology, including you know these these uh, beautiful tractors here. You mm-hmm. know, yep. so we're farm for profit, and obviously we're talking about some really cool technology. Do you guys have like a use case in ag that's actually going to pay $150,000 back? We think that over time, your time, the value of your time, the one thing that we've always said that farmers value the least is their own personal time. Right. And we've done some studies on how much time can you save driving around a 3,000 acre farm. And the reality is we think across a three, three and a half year period, you'll save uh, plenty of time if you rate your hourly rate it's somewhere above $75 an hour that you would save the right. money back on the vehicle you know just the reduction in compaction which is hard but there was a, a recent study from the University of Minnesota in North and North Dakota and uh, you know they they labeled it as if you can reduce row row level impedance into the crop field that you could save so, and I don't remember what the number is off the top of my head, but we calculated it into our stuff. I can actually get you the sheet. Right. And it, it would save it back in about three and a half years. You're, you're saving the money back on the vehicle. I think you're going to have to start calculating the cost of what a, that sprayer is over there, too. If yeah. you can replace something like that, yeah. it might take you a little bit longer, but $150,000 is uh, way less than that thing. You know, yeah. I wonder... Uh, you think of all the things that I think a drone could do that maybe it doesn't yet. So, first of all, transport. Second of all, spraying. And what, what do you spray? Fungicide, herbicide, uh, maybe go over it with a chemical to start with. Yeah, pre-emergence. Yeah. Yeah, so, pre-emergence. So, you might have three mm-hmm. passes. Pollinations um, now, too. So, yeah. pollination. Yeah. Like, we we just talked with power pollen and what that might look like. So, I imagine, like, attachments that go on to, like, a skid loader bucket. So, yep. the only reason a skid loader is good is because there's 50,000 attachments and yeah. I can have an auger and a whatever. Yeah. We need the, the skid loader of drones. Right. Is, is really, I think that's when it becomes the value add worth a hundred and a half easy. Right. I mean, just uh, look at our tractors. Uh, we'll, we'll pay that, but we have attachments for them. Yeah. We have all the attachments on the back that now we can do tillage, now we can do snow removal, now we can do, you know, yeah. uh, crop cleanup and, and you know, mowing, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's when it becomes valuable, but I don't know that we have the attachments for the vehicle to make it there yet. Do you, so do you, the, on, the, on the, the spraying part of it, do you guys have that built, or is it just conceptual? Right now, it's conceptual. So we're working with companies to come up with the configuration for it. The boom, though, to your point, is our system's designed, as you know, it's an open frame. Mm-hmm. So it makes it very easy to clamp on with the carbon fiber system. We actually have a carbon fiber c- clamp system. So you can put a boom, or you can put something else on it, something a little less aggressive than a 35-foot boom. Um, but so, so I think you're exactly right. I think having the ability, you know, your equivalent of a three-point harness, you know, or a hitch, you yep. know, system, right. I think that's going to happen in this space as well. Um, and, and, you know, size 
you know, matters in this in this situation because we can put a lot more and do a lot more than the drone can do from that perspective, from a capacity perspective. So I think drones are going to get bigger. You know, I mean, we technically we're just another drone when it comes to that part of it. Um, they're going to get bigger and they're going to get more efficient. So I think you're exactly right. I think that's going to be the wave of the future. What, uh, what uh, you know, we'd love to see it go to vehicles, but I think we're, yeah, 20, 30 years out. We'll be old by then, yep. Corey, by the time we do that. And, and then it might automate itself. Uh, but for crop, you know, production, we're always progressing forward with whatever the latest and greatest technology is. Is there, uh, you, you talked about funding. So any startup, entrepreneurial startup has funding there and uh, um, we have to have the funding behind it. What's the general public think? So you're, you're out there, crowdsource funding or, yeah, or yeah. Uh, like uh, venture capital money? It's um, both, but I mean, right okay. now we're, we have a, an open crowdfunding okay. round just like a lot of the companies have had. And I think people see it as cool and they want to invest. Yeah, in, they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves, yep, right? Yep, yep. I got you. A, a very positive uh, reaction back to that, or uh, yeah, going to take a lot more money to make this happen. I mean, what you're doing is going to take millions and millions, I think. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I can't talk too much about it because the crowdfunding's opening with the SEC right now. I We're raising you. five million, which is the max you can raise. Okay. And that's really to help prime that line. That's you. what we're that's what we're doing. We're raising it, hopefully closing it in time to, to start priming that line. And of course, once yeah. you have production, then you make money off off production. But it's yeah. not the end point. You're yeah. right. I mean, that's to get us to be able to build ten a month, and we want to get to the point where we can build a hundred of these a month. Yep. Okay. And so that's going to take more money down the line. There's a couple ways you can do it, and we're exploring all of it right now. I see a lot of companies as they grow, they get bought out. Uh, so it does it does Elon Musk come and say, "I like what you guys are doing. I'm taking over." I I mean, is that is that something that the company? I mean, you're the CEO, so no, you you want to stay there. But is there? I mean, for the right price, if somebody thought you had a crazy awesome technology, would you would you sell? I mean, you do what's best for the shareholders. I'm yep. not the only person in the company. We're going to make the right decisions for the shareholders, which every CEO is going to say to you. The reality is every CEO loves to run a company that they started. Yeah. But the reality is it doesn't always work that way. So we'll do whatever's best for everybody. You know, it, I don't think, you know, Elon Musk is, you know, the potentials for people who are going to love and embrace and take this technology. It's three quarters of the companies that are here at this show. Yeah. Right. John Deere colors. on that. Right. I could happen. Right. I, I I'm thinking you might have a cab. I think so there's a, I think there's a license problem with <laughs> us doing John Deere colors. <laughs> right. All right. Well, this is a what's working in ag segment. We've gone way over on time because yep. it's really cool <laughs> technology. But where can people go find Rise and how can they buy it? And then we got to get to our regular topic. Yes, uh, riseaerotech.com, which is R Y S E A E R O T E C H.com. Well, a great conversation there with Tanner and Rise. Thanks again to them for joining us on the podcast today. And we'll be back tomorrow with a new guest on the podcast who you'll be hearing here from more frequently. So until then, see you tomorrow.